our Old Testament lesson. Comes from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. It can be found in our Pew Bibles on page 266 or 519 in a large print. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the, the word which you have given to us. We pray that you would help us to hear it. We pray that you would help us to receive it. We pray that you would change us by it. We pray that you would help us to share it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give to you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Turning to our New Testament lesson, John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. Jesus is getting in trouble again with the Jewish leaders. It's going to be found on page 864 in your pew Bibles, or 1655 in large print. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so even even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, we are coming to the very end of the letter that we know as 1 John. That John wrote to believers. He wrote to people who are believing in Jesus. And the reason he wrote to them is because they were facing a culture that was lying to them. Maybe we can relate. A culture that was lying and about who Jesus was. About what it meant to follow Jesus. About what it meant to have life in Jesus. About what true life really was. And it's really all about. And so John, someone who knew Jesus pretty well, someone who was one of the, the closest three disciples, writes this letter to these believers. And now that he comes to the very end, he sort of sums it all up. And so if you've missed everything else up to this point, good news, you get to hear it all recapped right here. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13 and going on to the end. Here he summarizes the whole thing. And here's sort of his uh, purpose statement in all of it. I write these things, everything that's come before, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me just read that sentence again, just in case you missed it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so it ends. Oh, it's a big ending. It's such a big ending. I will start with the ending. As he says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Because it sounds like that has nothing to do with everything else he's been talking about. And yet, 
It has everything to do with what he's been talking about. When we hear idols today, we normally think of, you know, the people bowing down to the golden calf. And we say, well, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. Aren't we glad we've moved past idol worship? Oh, but we have not. Oh, but we have not. And when we worship anything other than God, we say, well, why would we do that? Well, ask yourself, what is of ultimate concern to you? It has been said by some theologians that that is what worship really is. Is that of, uh, that what we worship is that which is of ultimate concern to us. And for many people, that's stuff. Or for many people, that is safety. Or for many people, that is comfort. Or for many people, <clears throat> excuse me, can even be family. Or it can be status. We have all kinds of idols today. And John says, no to all of it. Keep yourselves from idols. But, that's the last sentence of the whole thing. Keep yourselves from idols is one final reminder of what everything else has been about. And here's the beautiful thing. What everything else has been about is showing exactly how we do that. And it's by staying in the one who's true. Not these false gods. Not the things that are leading us astray. But by staying with what's true. This is what is true, of course, is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who's revealed the true God to us, and it's through Jesus that we can actually have access to the true God, that we can have uh, an actual relationship with our Creator. And we can know what it means to live even now with Him. And uh, through that, we can be guaranteed life forever. True life. The real life. The life we were meant to have from the very beginning, before it all went wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now there's a lot in here we are just not even going to touch today. We do not have the time to open these cans of worms. So if you have questions about the stuff we're skipping, ask me. We'll talk about that later. For now, I'm going to talk about just two things. One, uh, the two things that we know that he mentions here. He mentions several things that we know, and all of it is sort of recapping things he said before. These are the things that we know. One of the things he says we know is we know um, that he, he, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, how is it that we know that he hears us? He says this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That is a very important part of this. It's really easy to take a look at this and say, hey, God's going to give me whatever I ask for, therefore I will just ask for whatever I want, and he's, he promised he's going to do it. But that's not what he promised. I'm reminded of a, uh, an old joke you may have heard before where a man heard a preacher say that to God, uh, a thousand years is like a minute, and a, a million dollars is like a penny. And the guy goes, aha. And so that night he prays, and he says, oh God, if you would just give me a penny, I'd be satisfied. And to surprise, he actually hears God answer him, and he says, of course, my child, just wait a minute. There you go. Right. But we do have these, these times where we ask for things that are not for our good. We ask for things that we want, but that God would never want for us. 
And we should not hold him to it. We should not hold him to giving us whatever we ask for. In fact, we should hope he doesn't give us whatever we ask for. I've heard uh, it said that basically, God always gives us what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows. Think about that. He always gives us what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows. This is where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and says, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we should be praying above all else, that God's will be done on earth and in our own lives. This is where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not what I will, what you will. And you know what? This is what John tells us is guaranteed to us. That if this is what we're praying, that if we're praying for things that are according to God's will, we don't have to wonder, did did he hear it? Did he get the message? Is he going to do that? Of course he's going to do that. Of course he will. And so we can have absolute confidence not only that he hears us, but that he will act uh, in our lives and for our good in these ways. The other one I want to point out, the other thing that we know, is in verse, uh, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now that's kind of hard. We know that we are children of God, and it would be nice to stop there. But he continues. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Well, what are we to do with that? Especially since it sounds like that means that God's not in control after all. Which we know can't possibly be right. Here I think we have uh, some helps. Take a look at Genesis, for example. The last verse of Genesis 37 goes like this. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, I read that, and you say, that doesn't help me at all. I'm aware. Let me try to give you some context for it. Explain why this one comes in right now. Here's the context. Joseph had been a jerk. He'd been a jerk to his brothers, to his parents. He said, I've had these dreams. I'm the best. You're all going to bow down to me, and I just want you to know it. And they basically had repeatedly said, just shut up. (laughs) And probably not even that nice. It had gotten pretty bad, to the point that they actually had decided to kill him, but then they made a backup plan where they just, you know, sell him as a slave. It's awfully nice. So they sell him as a slave. First they throw him in a pit, then they sell him when the uh, Ishmaelites come by to go down to Egypt. But here's the deal. For Joseph, at this point in the story, when he had been in the pit, it all looks bad. When he gets sold as a slave in a foreign land, it all looks bad. And from his perspective, we can see how what John is saying of how the world is under the control. Yeah, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Look at all the messed up stuff that's happened in this family. To the point that we have sibling rivalry to this extent. 
it is all bad. The things Joseph was doing, he should not have been doing. The things his brothers did, they should not have done. And there was a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow because of it. But here's the thing. When we get to that verse, that last verse again, in end of chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The first time you read through the story, you read it like Joseph. You read it from his perspective, and you say, this is all bad. And it's just going from bad to worse to worse to worse. And you see quite clearly how the world is under the control of the evil one. Everybody is doing what's wrong. But the second time you read the story, after you've made it all the way to the end, and you find out that God actually is working through all of the bad stuff that happens to work good not only in Joseph's life, Joseph's life but also for his brothers and also for all, the whole surrounding area, and you see how God can take even the bad and the messed up stuff that people were doing to each other. And turning it into something beautiful and something that is for the good and for the salvation of all those around. So that's the second time through. First time through, though, all you see is how it's all under control of the evil one. The second time through, you see how God is really working even above that. And that even all the control the evil has can't outdo God's plan for the good of the world. You look like you may be with me on this. Let's go to the book of Ruth. If I can find it. The last verse in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And you read that and you go, okay. At least the first time through. The first time through, when you're reading, you read it from the perspective of Naomi. Let me tell you the context of what's going on here. You have Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. They're the only two that come back to Bethlehem. That's where Naomi had been from, and she had gone away because there was no food in the land. That's bad. While she's away in a foreign land, her husband dies. That's bad. Her two sons die. That's bad. That's bad. And so when she comes back, she comes back accompanied by her daughter-in-law, but when she comes back, her name, Naomi, which means pleasant, she doesn't even let people call her that anymore. Instead, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because that's what my life is now. And so from her perspective, as you're reading through this story, you're reading it the first time through, completely from her perspective. And you say, yeah, a lot of bad is happening. But you know, by the time you get to the end of the story, and you see how God is able to work through all of this, you see that in this particular verse, in this particular moment, as they are arriving, just as the barley harvest is beginning that God is actually bringing them to the right place at the right time, even through all the bad stuff that's happening. For the good of Naomi and her family, and actually in a way that ends up blessing the whole world. She becomes the uh, ancestor of David and eventually Jesus. That's pretty big stuff. So the second time through, you don't read it from the perspective of Naomi and see how the evil is working in the world. Instead, you read it the second time through and you see it how God sees it how he is preparing them and putting them in the right place at the right time for what he's doing in the world. You can look over and over again. This is one of the reasons why we go through the Bible over and over again. Because a lot of times when we're going through it the first time, all we see is the way in which the whole world is under the control of the evil one.
And I'm not trying to, here to say that the evil that we experience or the evil that Naomi felt, the pain that Joseph experienced, that those aren't real and those aren't uh, things to be concerned about. They are. The Bible never says that the, ba- that the evil really isn't that bad. It says it's usually much worse than we even realize. But what the Bible tells us over and over again is that even though it's sur- we're surrounded by evil, even though there's evil that exists within us, it's much worse than we ever realize. What the Bible tells us over and over is, but it doesn't win. It does not win. And we see this over and over again. That as much as the whole world is under the control of the evil one, ultimately, is all under the control of the Almighty God who has put everything right in Jesus. And where do we see this most clearly, of course, is when Jesus is being um, sold by one of his own disciples. 30 pieces of silver, betrayed into the hands of those who don't care who he is or what he's about. People like Pontius Pilate, who just want what is, you know, politically best for them. And if it means this guy dies, he dies. What is that to me? And we see a corrupt judicial system. We see a corrupt, um, the corrupt government. We see evil winning. The first time through, when we see the cross, we see it from the perspective of the disciples, who look at the cross and they say, this whole world is under the control of the evil one. But you know, the second time through, when we see the cross again, we don't see this as merely as evil winning. But we see this as Jesus. Uh, evil, sure, killing Jesus. But we also see it as Jesus' victory over evil itself. And so, let me go back to that verse in John, First John. Who are those two things that we know again? We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do you hear this a little differently now? Yes, it's under the, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But did you hear that we aren't? We know that we are children of God. Which means as we move forward and we see things and we experience things for the first time through and we experience the evil that is all around us, we don't experience it the way the rest of the world does. Because even going through it the first time now, we have the ability to trust that we'll see it again a second time around. You've probably already had experiences in your life where you can look back and you say, the first time I was going through that, that was horrible. But I look back now and I see the way that God was working even then. Turning horrible and evil things into something good and even something beautiful. Not uh, making light of the pain, but redeeming it. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. We have, at the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, a description of things that will last and the things that won't last. He gives this whole beautiful description of love, and then he says, you know, uh, prophecies are going to go away. Knowledge is going to go away. Tongues is all going to go away. But, there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 
If you read back through the whole letter of 1 John, you'll see that that is one of the things that John has been telling us. That this is how we know that we have fellowship with him. If we are living in a, if we're walking in the light, this is how we know that we actually have life in Jesus. If we are living in love for God and for our brothers and sisters. And now you know why he's able to say that we are the ones, uh, keep ourselves from idols, but also who are, uh, who have eternal life. Because we are living in the one who is life itself and who calls us to be a part of the things that will last. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.